I'm Jason. On my podcast, What Works, I interview authors, educators, executives, and people who work to change the world. I walk for a moment on their journey and learn from them. For me, that's What Works. You're listening to What Works with Jason Todd, and today my guest is Bill Dolan, fascinating guy. He's been in the television and entertainment industry for years. He's an Emmy-nominated TV director, but the cool thing we're talking about today is in 1999, he had an after-death experience, which changed his life, his business, and marketing. He wrote a book about it called Seven Disciplines of Relationship Marketing. Bill, welcome to What Works. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jason. It's great to be here. I'm excited to make sure that of all the incredible shows you've done, uh, this will be one of them. I am hopeful as well. We've spent a handful of minutes talking right before we recorded this, and we are kindred spirits, I can tell. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. You spent years in TV and entertainment, and and now we meet you know, by happenstance on LinkedIn, because you're talking about a serious life event, which seems far from entertainment and marketing. Connect the dots here. What were you doing before this life event? And how did how did that shift occur? Well, sure. They, it, it's an interesting, it, 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 it's not plan A. I'll just tell you that. It's not plan A. But it, but it is an interesting story, the way things unfold. And uh, you're right. I started out in television. In fact, when I was just uh, 20 years old, I started uh, directing at the ABC affiliate here in our region, which exposed me to great producers and directors and writers and agencies. So I really grew up in that industry. But then, uh, um, you know, I'd married my high school sweetheart, and we were talking about, well, what would life be if we started a family? So that began my entrepreneurial journey and that to answer the question how do you how do you come up with the resources to be able to raise a family and uh um, i started what now is spirit media our agency really doing the stuff that didn't compete in the broadcast world because i did a lot of large-scale commercial work um, but it, it, Spirit Media was really set up to be able to do corporate communications, nonprofit communications, or because of my background in directing, I could go do shows. So that opened up doors for me to uh, direct a lot of live events with uh, Gwen Stefani and the Black Eyed Peas and, and uh, uh, Avril Lavigne. And I mean, you could go down a list, hundreds and hundreds of people that need live directors to work with them in their productions. So between that and the corporate events, I was having a ball. I mean, literally having a ball. And uh, one of the challenges about being in the the TV, the entertainment space is that it it doesn't happen virtually. You have to go to live spaces to be able to experience and produce things. And uh, so while my beautiful wife and I had started a family, I was on the road so much that I was turning, for lack of a better term, into an absentee father and husband because I was gone. Now, it wasn't like I was um, gone all the time. I, I really thought I was doing the right thing. I was raised in the kind of generation where you you get up and you you go to work and you provide the paycheck and put the roof over the head and do all that stuff. So you feel like you're doing all the right stuff. Um but you're not present. You're not there. 
and now of course my kids are, are adults and they would be quick to tell you to say, yeah, dad, you were at our birthdays, you were um, at all our special events, you were, you know, all those things. But if we were in a room with you, you were thinking about the next project you were creating, or you might be on the phone or you're jumping on stuff. And it was cool. It was neat to say, daddy does this. But it was uncool to know that we were somewhat distanced from you in terms of having a really present relationship. Now, I didn't have the emotional wherewithal to really catch that at the time, but it was catching up with me here. So by 1998, um, I was what most people would say the, the pinnacle of success in my space, short of being a major motion picture director or, or going on tour, which I would not go on tour. I knew that that would be the end, but I would do special shows. Everything looks sweet. And um, I had an opportunity to produce a documentary project. And I thought maybe this could be the difference because if you produce documentaries, you know, you dive into production and you, you get all that stuff taken care of. It goes into post. But then what happens is it goes into distribution. And once it goes into distribution, you have distribution partners who are selling it. And then the money comes in from it. And I thought that could be a great way to do it. Um, maybe I could be home more. Maybe I could focus on some passion projects. So I, with a partner, developed this documentary, and it did get a distributor, uh, which, by the way, uh, you know, for anybody who's watching this and thinks, oh, I want to get in the entertainment, blah, blah, blah space. <laughs> Look, all productions ultimately are only as good as their ability to be distributed. A lot of people think the golden, you know, ring is when you go, ah, I shot this, or I wrote this, or I produced this. No, it's I have written it, and I produced it, and I've shot it, and it, and it got seen by somebody. Right. That's, that's the breakthrough. So for us to get that, and to get a call from a company in Nashville to say, hey, uh, we love this product. We want to distribute it, and come here to Nashville, and, and we even have a large check you know, deposit check for this. This is sweet. So on, on that morning, January uh, 20th, 1999, I knew my life was going to change that day. I knew because we were on the threshold of a new season, a new opportunity, maybe far more lucrative, far more rewarding. And maybe I'd be a better dad. Maybe I'd be a better husband. You know, what would it take? So I got on that plane with my best friend, Timothy Greenidge, who's a fabulous gospel singer, by the way. And we fly out over Mount Hood. I live in Portland. And we fly out over Mount Hood. And I can still remember looking out the window and seeing that beautiful mountaintop, snow-covered, looking there, so majestic, so much bigger than any problems you ever have anything you ever have, it's right there. And I remember th thinking, wow, I am so blessed. I'm just so blessed. And then I started to feel funny. Hmm. And it was weird because I'm on planes all the time, all the time. 
and I never get sick, but it's as if things were like closing in on me, just like, it was bizarre. And I started to get a little nervous. Um, thinking, man, I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be sick. But I felt like I was really losing it. And I turned to Tim. I said, Tim, there's something's not right. This is the last thing I said to Tim before, as he described, my eyes just rolled back in my head and my arms fell by my side and my, my heart stopped. And Tim, um, actually, you know, he really thought for a quick second, oh, quit joking with me. Yeah. And then he saw, no, he's not joking. I guess when someone has that kind of scenario happen, I guess they get a look and I had the look and he went, no, there's something wrong. So Tim, not knowing CPR, began taking his fist, start punching me in the chest. I mean, that's really all I knew is, like, okay, we're going to get this and maybe we'll wake him up or whatever. Nothing happened. And Tim's a giant guy. Um, he picked me up. He put me in the, in the aisle. He began doing chest compressions. Still nothing. Nothing at all. And um, he got to the point, he said I was, he pulled back his fist. And he's saying, I am going to break his ribs. And as he pulls back, I take a breath. <laughs> and um, the thing that's that's so cool about that, and I say cool, for me, was that while on this plane, there was like mayhem and there's a guy and he's dying and what are we going to do? And they talked to the figure, we're going to have to do an emergency landing. I had the most profound experience of my entire life and where he was in this, this two minutes, three minutes, whatever, about a tragedy. What am I going to do? So I know I was past the threshold of eternity. I could have been there for two, three million years. Literally, the entire dimension of time and space stopped for me. And, uh, of course... Um, I did come back. And for those people that are, you know, into the medical thing, I just happened to have here my first pacemaker. Oh, wow. <laughs> because they um, got me in the cardiac wing and they, I didn't have a heart attack. I was diagnosed with malignant neurocardiogenic syncope, which malignant means it can die, neuro's brain, cardio's heart, and syncope means out of sync. And it's like a cousin to like fainting spells. If someone faints, really what that's what they call a syncopus issue. You know, blood stops flowing to the brain for some reason, constriction of, of uh, the capillaries, everything. You just, and you go, well, I have an extreme form where my brain tells my heart to stop. Clearly a malfunction there. Yeah. And uh, they don't know what causes it. But what they do know is how to prevent it. So they put these in your chest. And the changes in me certainly occurred by having that kind of a life experience or death experience. The changes in me occurred in certainly the experience I had through that and what I encountered. 
But the other change really kind of came through this little guy. Because, um, because of my condition, if my heart rate drops below a certain point, this guy triggers in and triggers in and brings my heart rate back up to where it should be. And then it goes back into monitor mode. And at different times during the life of, of the pacemaker, about six times a day, it's had to intervene to keep my heart from stopping. And the prospect and the thrill of knowing that when I go to bed at night, there's a malfunction, I might not wake up. And when I get up in the morning, it's with an overwhelming sense of gratitude that between medical science and the grace of God, I've been given another day. And that constant recognition that every day is a precious gift changed me. And um, it changed my approach to my personal life, my family life, my business life, and oddly enough, the fact that I am involved in this entertainment and marketing piece, it made me look at that much deeper to say, if I'm going to work in this space, if I'm called to work in this space, how do I do it in a way that is meaningful and impactful, that I'm not just wasting my breath that I've been given, but I'm using it to make a profound impact on the world? Isn't it great that business literally injects us into society every day? And the, how we conduct our business, what we do with our business, the lives we impact, is a decision and a privilege that we get to decide every day. And that's ultimately what, what led to me searching, studying, and then ultimately writing the book. When did this book come out? How long since 1999? How many, how many years? Oh, boy. Well, it took a while. Um, yeah. It just came out in 2020. Yeah. And I can tell you that even today, when you have an experience like that, it's not like you flip the switch. Look, yeah. I'm a guy. I'm a flawed guy. I'm a guy. Remember, the guy before was going, well, gee, he struggles with emotional intelligence. It's not like this flip switched and then, oh, I'm a, you know, a pillar of wisdom. It, it was one of those things where I had to learn learn right. a little bit of time, learn a lot. And here's the thing. Um, um, look, I, I, I was raised Catholic. And so I was around, um, you know, religious structures and things like that and had respect. Uh, but, you know, when you, look, I always say, if you have a near-death experience, if you weren't a little religious before, you'll get that way. Because it causes you to do a lot of deep diving into either a personal search or even into your root system. What does that mean? And I, here's what I did. Um, I started reading um, the Gospels. There are four books, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which really just document the life of Jesus. And whatever reason that just stirred me is, um, especially after 
the death experience I had. Part of me wanted to go back and kind of like when you, you, you read the book, now you watch the movie, you watch the movie, now you want to read the book. Well, I had one of those. And I said, I, I want to check out this Jesus guy. Here's the thing that's crazy. Okay. You can, and I don't mean to be sacrilegious or anything like that. You can say, look, Jesus talked about love. He talked about all these beautiful things that, that have pervaded our cultures um, and, and have had wonderful lessons. But I'll tell you what jumped out at me. I looked at this with a new light. And as I started reading Jesus' life in chronological order, I not only saw a, a, a great man, a, a revolutionary, if you will, I saw the greatest marketer in the history of mankind. <laughs> okay. All right. And, and what I did is I started taking notes and I, I said, what did he do when to whom and how and whatever? As I started to do it, I began to reverse engineer what happened in his life and what happened after his life. And I realized that I wasn't just looking at the greatest marketing plan. I was looking at the framework for creating a movement. Okay. And I said, I want to try this. And so with my clients, without saying, oh, here I have the death experience, let me try this, you know, it was like, no, these are sound. I started applying these principles one after another, boom, boom, boom. Each time, great success, killer success. I mean, like the clients, more than pleased, delighted, and sometimes just like blown away with the outcomes when you followed the path through. And so after I had proof of concept, proof of concept, proof of concept. It wasn't just some, you know, idea that I thought of. And, you know, in a dream, it was like, this is brilliant. I'm going to write this down. I'm going to document it. And when I had solidified it enough that I was ready to share, I finally wrote a book. And that's why it took me so long. So before this transition point in 1999, you felt in your soul, perhaps, that uh, there might have been perhaps a disconnect between the life that you were living and the success that you were creating in in your efforts, but there was a there was a disconnect between how people were feeling perhaps externally to you, and you weren't. It sounded to me like you weren't present in the moment. You weren't present with the people. You were connected to all these things externally from yourself, and then. And then it seems during this near this this new life experience, perhaps, uh, you became or experienced sort of a grounding, like this is yeah. this is now, this is today, and the next moment, like you talk about, is not guaranteed. Uh, tomorrow, I might not be here, and it seems it it seems that 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 was so significant that it kind of stripped away the, maybe the chasing after some of these things and, and and maybe even brought these like ideas of relationships down to more principled approaches rather than just, Hey, we're going to entertain people and we're going to have a good time and it's going to be great. And it's going to be, you know, a, it, it's going to be amazing. Now, now it seems like you're, you are or, or, or researched and are now operating by principles of connection, which are pervasive across all cultures and all time, which is why they work in my opinion so well. Right. That's, is that, Pretty accurate representation. I, I think it's a, the very accurate representation. I, it, really, the, the the process that started to unfold with me was was this. 
what's really important mm-hmm. what really is you know if 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 i do go tomorrow or i you know go in the middle of our, our time here together what will i what will i have left what if if i've been given this gift of breath how will that breath have been made an impact in others and there's really two things that emerged not only through my research but through reflection and 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 application and that is and it sounds cliche to say but it's the recognition that every human being desperately desires to be loved the desire to love and to to have some significance to know their life has meaning and so when you recognize okay love be loved well when i use this example in the book i said it's, it's kind of like the sun the sun sits in the middle of our universe and there's this glowing nuclear blast all the time but if you and i were to go into space go up 200 miles 300 miles move towards the sun guess what happens it actually gets really really cold really cold and you say well why is that if i'm moving closer to the sun why well the reason is is that the warmth and the benefits of all the things have the sun has only is experienced when it has something that it reflects and interacts with for example our earth when the sun hits our earth now the radiant power of that light gets transformed into heat and energy out in space it's nothing so the concept of love all by itself is pretty and nice but like the cold of space it's just a concept but love in relationship is the most powerful powerful force anywhere and that in relationship is the key so rather than just me thinking love 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 sing a beatles song it's how is love expressed in relationship not only in our world but for example you and i um in and in our time together and in the relationships in my in my life how will i express that and of course that presence piece that's one of the greatest acts of love you can give somebody to be able to say you're so important that i'm going to look into your eyes i want to hear your heart i want to hear your thoughts because you are valued and you're worthy to be honored you're worthy to be respected and yeah you're worthy to be loved so when we make that shift and make that deliberate point to love that's that's big now i will also say this that morning when i when i had my death experience it's like any other morning i'm bolting out the door doing my thing my idea of leaving and coming back was so routine that sometimes the kids would be at school and come home and not even realize oh dad left oh dad's in la or dad's here now and it dawned on me how many times i've left another life especially a precious life without having told them i love them and i committed from that point on and i don't care how freakish it looks i'm going to tell the people in my life i love them and if it's the last words out of my mouth 
And they say, oh, I remember the last words he said. He said he loved me. I don't want it to have been, you screwed up. Do this. Make sure you got this. Yeah, check boxes and getting things done are important. But nothing's more important than letting the people in your life know that you love them. Yeah, it seems to be the thing that everybody craves. People, you know, I think, uh, I think the concept that people want to be seen and oh. and accepted for being seen, and so many times we kind of put on these fronts as though, as though we don't want to be seen, we might be afraid to be seen, and so we kind of push. We, in some ways, we push and repel people away. And I know for for many times, entrepreneurs, executives, people that get caught up in in doing all of these things. Sometimes it's an unconscious effort to to be seen for and accepted for all of the things I can do rather than to be seen and accepted simply because I am, which I'm wondering, as you were granted new life in that moment, new life comes through through death. what what in you, if you had to look at the other side of this, if you if you now see this revelation of connection and gratitude, what died in you? What was stripped away from you in that near-death experience? Well, I'd say one of the things that was stripped away from me in a really good way was, uh, and it took time, was my false perceptions of what love is. And uh, I, I've shared that, I shared that recently on, on LinkedIn. And I talked about goals and things like that. Look, because we all desire to love and be loved, um, we often mimic behaviors or scenarios that they, we think will cause us to be loved. For example, if it, you know, we we know that we love winners. We love winners. Now we lo also love underdogs, you know. But we we love winners, so we think, ah, boy, if I'm a winner. I'll be loved. Uh, we also see that people that that uh, get a lot of, of press. You know, I've worked with tons and tons of celebrities, and some are very good dear friends. And and, uh, and I, I can tell you that just being known and being famous and being rich does not make you loved. But it gives the illusion of being loved because you get attention. We think we give attention to that which we love. So if I get attention, I might be loved. Or if I look beautiful, I might be loved. Or if I have a power, I might be loved. Or if I attach myself to someone with power, I might be loved. Or if I own something that makes me look cool, I might be loved. See, we go down tons of what I would call um, pseudo-love exercises that give us the illusion. Um, and all the time, every time we paint that illusion, thinking that if I do this, I'll be loved, while knowing inside who we really are. That's one of the reasons that people struggle because one, then they deal with imposter syndrome because they compare their insides with other people's outsides and realize, well, yeah, I don't live up to that false standard I'm, I'm shooting for. But the other is <clears throat> deep down, I think we know when we have put on a mask even though that mask can stick hard and kind of hard to rip off. And that deep sense of, 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 of longing for meaning um, will gnaw at you. 
And of course, the way we get around it, anesthetize it. Let's see if, if I can fill my life with a bunch of dopamine filled exercises that give me the illusion of winning and happiness, but not fulfillment. I, 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 my, my example, really my favorite example is, is Disneyland. And I say it respectfully because I, I've done a lot of work with the Disney folks. I've done a lot of work at Disneyland and I love it. It's a beautiful form of artistry and there's so many wonderful things about it. But here's the, here's the bad part. When you walk into the park, it says, welcome the happiest place on earth. And you get on and you get in line, longer lines than you used to, and maybe you get on that Dumbo ride. <laughs> and you go up and you swing around, you swing around, you swing and go, wee, and you take the picture. And here's the, the good news. It makes you happy. Here's the bad news. You get off the very same place you got on. Hmm. So you have filled a vacuum with dopamine, but you have not done anything towards greater fulfillment. And when you are absent of that real love and absent of that real understanding of your purpose and your calling and move into that fulfillment stage, which is what, look, I do it in my life. I do it even our marketing. Our marketing is about why, why, you know, the clients get love it and get freaked out that I press them this way. But I want to press on them that we're going to do something that's going to make a difference, not just a dollar. And that's yeah. why we do what we do. Yeah, it seems that that's, that change in you moved you from this idea from success to significance. And now it's been a pervasive thing because there's nothing in the way. And I think maybe it, it sounds to me as it's heightened the priority for you that if you're going to if you're going to expend your energy which is your life you're going to be present uh and intentional about where you're spending that energy and if you are and if you have gifts and connections and resources to be able to make an impact you're going to be intentional about spending that energy to make the greatest impact in something that matters uh, yeah and and that's an aspiration yeah because that is the desire that is the hope you know, over my shoulder, you see Iron Man back there. And uh, Iron Man, one of my souvenirs from a show I did, I've done some work with the Stan Lee Foundation. And, and uh, um, Stan's motto that I absolutely love, Stan Lee, who developed Iron Man and Spider-Man and all these great Marvel characters, was this, that inside every flawed human being is a superhero waiting to emerge. And it's a recognition that all of us are flawed. But the superhero, the one inside us that says you are born for greatness, you have a profound purpose, you have a unique opportunity to make a difference in the world that no one else can, is the superhero aspect. And it doesn't mean we look like it every day. It doesn't mean we fly or swing from tall buildings or anything like that. But it means when the time comes, we're there. Yeah. And I'm convinced of that same thing. I think everybody has a superpower and the, the folks who can step into that fully, I, I think are the folks that live with the most feeling of significance. And it seems to me that it does take a stripping away in my experience of the uh, false senses of security 
the false senses of success, because in the end, those things turns out don't matter uh, because they are transient in nature. I'm, I'm also wondering, you know, it, through this experience, it took you some time to, uh, to distill and research these thoughts. It's sort of like, sort of like a cloud, right? They, uh, the clouds pass, you got all these ideas, these thoughts, and then, and then enough ideas sort of stick together. And it's like, oh, this, it comes a raindrop and that, and all the, the rain falls harder, which I'm guessing is kind of what it, what it may have felt like as you're writing that book, it's, it's condensation coming down and then it flows into a river and you're like, yeah, this is it. This, this is the message I want to share with the world in my experience. And and maybe this is yours too, that when folks have a pivotal moment in their lives where they radically change, perhaps the way they show up, some people don't follow them. Uh, some people can't from, from their, you know, let's say prior journey, can't figure out how to make that transition with them into that future in your experience what was your experience like with the people around you as they see you changing what were the people around you doing oh you know i it's it's hard to say i will I look I'll, I'll say look being the dad probably the people that have watched me the most are my kids you know and there's times they go oh i'm so proud of you dad and there's times they go bs you know you know, I know you're still working through stuff. You're still flawed. You still, you know, make mistakes. Um, and uh, uh, and I, I would say the biggest thing that they learn is they know I'm on a journey. And they recognize maybe for themselves they're on a journey. And that unlike, a, a, you know, some monolith that's sitting in the middle of the desert that sits unchanged for for thousands of years, we are constantly transforming. And whether it's our intention to move or not move, we live in, I will call it the current of society, the current of our world. And uh, what they do is they see that maybe in the past, I might have just been going with the flow in the entertainment space and going with the flow of my career and everything like that. You know, that to be successful, you got to do this and you got to go there and blah, blah, blah. They see now that I have a rudder. And they see that I have made a decision about being the captain of this ship and being deliberate about um, the direction of my life, the role I play, and also the incredible piece that if I die tomorrow, I don't sit here in a pool of anxiety going, oh, look, death and dying and, and the passing and saying goodbye is not easy. But heart is not bad. Heart is not bad. Um, so if I left, yeah, it might be, would be, well, it might be, I'm presuming it'll be hard. <laughs> For, you know, for people around me, <laughs> you know, but I'm at total peace about it because we're moving forward knowing that I am not perfect. I'm a flawed human being that has had a profound experience that I pray other people can grasp and do that with their own life and do that not just in their life, but do it in their business apply it to every part of your life. And that's where the greatest fulfillment uh, lives. Yeah. So these seven disciplines of relationship marketing are, are built 
I think it, they must be if your research led you to uh, Jesus and you know the Bible and 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 his connection with other folks. Uh, it they must be based on some universal principles. My guess is. Okay, so do you do you have those universal principles? Can you just quickly outline those for us? I'll give you the the quickie version. Yeah. Um, I mean the first the first the first piece of it, and and my second book is going to go much deeper into this, and and it's the, it's the discipline of of what I call di- of mission, mm-hmm. and we have tools that go with each one of them. So it's not like now you got to do this. You know, let's be positive, love yourself. You know, I, I those are all good things, but I want to take the values and the principles and throw overalls on them and put them to work. So the first discipline is really about mission. And in that, what we teach people is how to craft a mission manifesto. Mm-hmm. Similar like a constitution says, this is who I am. And it really addresses that idea of why. And we help people figure out what the why is. What is their purpose? Then we go into missions. Now, here's the thing that you get watching Jesus. is if you read through all his stuff and start to decide, okay, what's purpose, what's mission, whatever. He actually had 26 missions. The missions that you see him enact look more like a military campaign where you can say, okay, yeah, we want to win the war, but what are we going to do? We're going to provide the supply. Mission number one, supply the lines. Number two, equip the troops. Number three, we're going to, you know, whatever. And there's missions that are a part of a fulfilling a larger purpose. So rather than feeling like your arms are always tied behind your back, like you've got to come up with this mission you're going to throw up on the wall or put in your employee manual, which by the way, most people go, right, you know, right. choke at, because yeah. yeah. you feel like you've got to say something so broad and so sweeping that it now means almost nothing. It's not actionable. One of the things we apply here is that principles mission and there's financial missions there's personal missions there's strategic mission aspects of it and when you look at your whether it's a project or it's your business or your life we break those missions down and here's the thing that's really cool for every mission that's where your goals come from goals are not some isolated thing floating out in space like asteroids they are directly correlated because a mission is only mission really driven when it's actionable. So, you know, who's going to do it? When are they going to do it? How are they going to do it? How do we hold them accountable? And how does that connect with the other missions to align with the purpose? So when you have a goal, it is like a nugget of action. It's, it's, it's the uranium that's about to fuel the launch of your business or, or whatever it is you're called to do with this piece. Then there's another element and there's the value piece and we talk about brand values everybody talks about brand and branding and whatever like personal branding whatever look real branding at its heart when you strip away the masks saying what's most important to you and what do you aspire to at your greatest level so we have a worksheet we share with people and we actually it's a downloaded for free i think uh, on the 70rm website it just has a list we do with our clients is list these attributes that you say, this is who I am and this is what I aspire to. And you start shaping those up to make sure that you're a brand expression, not just in words, but in deed. And the last piece of that is the vision piece. And a lot of people talk about vision. It gets a little fuzzy. Like you talked about clouds and concepts. Let me tell you how you condense vision. 
look at vision, for example, like when you were a little kid and you put together puzzles, I'm guessing. I put together puzzles when I was a kid. Um, the first thing you do when you put together a puzzle is you look at the front of the puzzle box. That's what vision should be. In our world, though, we usually do it backwards. We start grabbing pieces or there's people people want to sell you stuff oh you need this piece here you need this piece we didn't take that oh i need that you're smarter than me i'll take this piece next thing you know we're busy trying to put together a montage of clutter to see if i can make something out of it and hope that something emerges and sometimes it does but i'll tell you there's nothing like having the puzzle box when you have that just the freedom that you have in being able to say, these are the pieces I need. And oh, by the way, I appreciate the offer. I don't need that piece. That piece doesn't fit into my puzzle. Removing the sheer volume of distractions we have in our mind and we have in the markets will give you a level of focus that will double, triple, quadruple your productivity towards a more purposeful vision rather than just chasing usually those subconscious things about maybe if I do this, I'll be loved. So that's, that's the first discipline in action. And that'll be a lot in the second book. The second really is recognition. We're here for people. We're here to be in service and understanding who you're uniquely called to serve. We go into that. It's more than just saying, oh, who's your market or who's your audience? We actually go through the same way. If I were to drive to your home, I'd get an address and I'd get a zip code and it would tell me exactly where to go to take me to your front door. But when it comes to most marketing communications, at best, we know people by neighborhood. We know people by community, maybe, maybe by state. We don't know people. We end up throwing mud against the wall because we don't take the time to generally be present for those we're called to serve. And so we have a principle called the 10 digit human address that where you deliberately take those people that you wish you had a thousand of those clients you wish you had and walk through that process so that you can really know them intimately and put a picture of them in front of your computer, in front of your door that says, guess what? Jason's my guy. I am here for Jason, period. It's, it's about Jason. And it's a game changer because guess what that affects your entire messaging strategy. So instead of talking to the universe, your messaging turns into a love letter because every word is said with meaning and relevance and care and concern and hope and aspiration for the audience that you know how to serve, not an imaginary cloud that you hope someday will turn into a drop of water and land in your cup. It seems like it's, it seems that it takes it takes marketing from a numbers game and how do I how do I just fill my hopper with more people to a very personal uh, aspect maybe slow slowing down it seems what it feels it feels to me like it slows down the process of marketing and makes it focus on me it takes marketing to focuses it on meaning rather than simply you know, throwing phrases out there and graphics and saying, well, you know, we, we think we've got our client avatar uh, and throwing things out to the universe. 
Well, yeah, you know, and, and that's why the term is seven disciplines of relationship marketing. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's interesting when you watch people search or think relationship marketing, you think, oh, yeah, I'm going to put in my CRM that, oh, Chuck, Chuck has two kids and he likes golf and, you know, here's his birthday and I'm going to send him a birthday card as if I get, I care, you know, or I'm going to have everybody in the office sign their name to a gift card or something. Well, that's garbage. You and I know that that is feigning interest. It's feigning care. It's feigning relationship. It, it, you know, I don't know who all your audience is, but hopefully I'll keep this PG. I mean, look, when we're in high school and, and, and you go to the prom, and, and uh, uh, you know, you meet your date for the first time, you know, she's like, no, eyes here, tiger, you know, eyes yeah. here, you know, <laughs> I remember that feeling, but that thing still goes on with salespeople all the time where, yeah, we're not looking at people's eyes. We're staring at their wallet. And guess what? Customers, clients, the people in your life know when you look at them for what you can get out of them, not for what you can give to them. And they're busy going, hey, hey, but they know where your eyes are going. So relationship marketing is more than feigning relationship. It's getting your eyes in the right place because your heart is in the right place. And then we have systems to allow you to do it effectively and thoughtfully and efficiently. Well, this has been fascinating uh, to dig into your book and also the story. I can only imagine that you've told that story so many times since 1999. And I'm I'm guessing that as you've told it and retold it in your own mind, it has developed more meaning for you. And now you've got this book, Seven Disciplines of Relationship Marketing. And you said you're working on a second follow-up book to that? Yeah. Yeah. What's your uh, timeline on that, do you think? It'll come out before the end of the year. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the plan. It'll come up for the end of the year. Uh, you know, and look, talk about flawed human beings. Like I'm a television director and I'm actually a really accomplished television director. I'm a new writer. Writing this book was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, it's one of the most satisfying, but it was hard. And so as I'm going through the second book, I know enough now to even be more critical. So I'm aiming to have this book out before the end of the year, but know that I am like wrestling with it as I do. I understand. Uh, I completely understand. I wrote my first book uh, and published it this past year and wrote it in a way that I've never produced it in a process that I have never followed pretty much in anything else before. And it was very, uh, it was an eye-opening experience to, to get that done. Uh, but, but meaningful. So uh, how can people follow up with you to get more information about the 7DRM? I know your book is available on Amazon uh, and you talk about the 7DRM website. Where, where can people go for that? Well, yeah, if you just want to connect to, to connect through the 7DRM, go to seven, the number seven, and then the drm.com. It's just a landing page. It's a place where you can see the different ways you can engage with, with us of the 7DRM product. It'll take you to Amazon if you want to buy the book or the Kindle. We also have a video series. So if you want to go through the workshop, very inexpensive way to just go through the material, you can do the self-study workshop. And we're going to be launching some um, seminars that are going to be open to the public. But I will say that 
probably one of the number one ways that people apply the seven disciplines is people will hire us to come in and do a 7DRM workshop in their company or their organization. And that's another option if someone feels like, man, I, I really want to dig in. I'm ready to wipe the slate clean, get a great overhaul, or even just refine and make sure that we're doing the right things for the right reasons in the right ways. So that that's one way. And, and my agency still exists. We still produce a lot of television. We produce a lot of videos. We produce a lot of live events. And that's spiritmedia.com. Awesome. Well, Bill, thank you so much for being on the What Works podcast to me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All righty. Well, to our viewers and listeners, this is the What Works podcast, where we interview executives, authors, and people who are looking to change the world. I hope that you follow up with Bill and his resources, and you might find your world, your business, your life changed as well. If you know a person working to change the world who would be a great guest on the What Works podcast, contact me, Jason at therealjtodd.com. You're listening to What Works with Jason Todd. Learn more at therealjtodd.com.